0: Please remain standing for the reading of our good and gracious king's word to us this morning from Esther chapter 9 through the end of the book, Esther 9, 20 through 10, verse 3. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the providence of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, "...as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, And had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter... And of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews." nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in the words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season. And Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written? in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated. And let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Father, we do wish to behold you in your mighty acts of redemption in our great Savior Jesus so that we would remember and never forget. And so help us this day to behold you, to know you, to love you, to worship you all our days, we pray. Amen. Well, next to uh, the phrase, I love you, the thing I most often hear Becky say to me is, don't forget. Now, I'm not complaining. Uh, it's not her fault. She has to tell me that all the time. That's, that falls squarely on me. Uh, she lovingly bears with me and has to say it so often because I forget so often. Even heading out the door, she'll say, don't forget, I texted you on my way to the grocery store. And I say, I won't because I think I won't forget. I promise I will not forget, only to unpack groceries and realize <laughs> I've forgotten something. Now, I have, I have improved, I think, uh, you could ask her, uh, but uh, over the years, I think I've improved a little bit. Uh, so now there's times when I just mess around and pretend I have. Forgotten something, and hide it for a while, and then put it in a bag she's already looked at, and then she thinks she's the one that's crazy, <laughs> or I say, "Oh, can't believe I forgot," and then I'll pull it out and put it on the counter, and she'd be like, "Oh, Jage." <laughs> but I do forget, uh, and maybe more often than than other people. Uh, but I think I have good company, in some sense, because. God's people in the Old Testament have a long history of forgetfulness. It's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. How quickly God's people frequently forgot God. How easily they forgot his miraculous, mighty, saving acts and act like they didn't just happen. And so, a frequently repeated command throughout the Old Testament is remember, don't forget. And we can all, I think, uh, understand forgetting a grocery item. I mean, who hasn't done something like that? But God and His miraculous, mighty acts of salvation? I mean, surely we don't need to be told to remember God and to never forget all that He's done, right? Well, I don't want to speak for you, um, but if I can forget groceries, I know I forget lots of things. And I imagine you too have found yourself at a time or a place in life where who God is and what he's done hasn't shaped your current thinking or speaking or living because you had forgotten him. But the amazing thing about the story of scriptures is that our God never forgets us. Time and time again, right after an amazing moment of salvation and his people quickly forgetting him. The moment they cry out to God, they were heard by the God who had not forgotten them and who had not given up on them. And so it shouldn't surprise us that here at the end of a miraculous salvation, knowing the history of his people, God institutes, through Mordecai and Esther, an annual feast of Purim, commemorating the surprising reversals that took place, and to do it year after year without fail so that they would never forget their salvation from the evil plot that brought them to the brink of extinction. No matter what was going on in their lives, no matter where they found themselves in the world, The 14th and 15th day of Adar were set aside every every year to remember God's miraculous, surprising salvation in his mighty reversals. And so I want us to see three things uh, that they were in danger of forgetting through the course of the year. Three things that they were in danger of not remembering. And so first, the first thing is the, the annual Feast of Purim... It was a time to remember that there's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as chance. Uh, This feast was called Purim, uh, which came from the Persian word pur for lots. Uh, And it actually seems, doesn't it, uh, an odd name for the feast. Because what was it? What were lots? I mean, it was this pagan practice of casting the lots, the dice, or the sticks, or whatever they were casting, to find favor with gods who are no gods at all. (laughs) Why would you name it after that? But actually, it's pretty brilliant, isn't it? Uh, If if we find ourselves in the story and read chapters 1 through chapter 10 in one sitting, when we come to the practice of lots in chapter 3, all we know is that Haman is is casting lots to find the day to attack God's people. And then all the plans are put in motion towards that one day where this seemingly inevitable attack and destruction and death and annihilation are gonna take place. But what we come to find out in the end is we realize it's God who made the lots land on these days through his hidden hand of providence to actually be the day not for his enemy's victory, but their enemies' destruction. So it's actually this beautifully subversive name for this feast to remind us that there's no such thing as chance, because God is always at work. And it's really no stretch at all uh, to connect lots to God's hidden hand of providence. Now, I'm not doing that just because it's the, the, like the Jesus juke thing that people people expect pastors to do on a Sunday. We're in a church, so of course we're going to find God in these things. I mean, even if God's never explicitly mentioned. But that's why it's actually not a weird name for this feast. Because it actually points us to there is no such thing as chance. Because God is always in control. Though God is never explicitly mentioned in Esther, this feast's name definitely points us to him. As Proverbs 16, says, the lot, poor, is cast into the lap, but it's, the lots, every decision is from the Lord, from the Lord. It might seem like it's a random cast of the dice, but its decision when it lands is from the Lord. And so every year when God's people celebrate Purim, they celebrate their God who is always in control and so is always fulfilling his promises, even when his people can't see how. Now, we just heard um, this past week that the grant request for our sanctuary um, campaign project uh, and to have the grant go to that construction was denied. Uh, they went through their checklist. They counted up how many pennies they had, and they went through all their parameters and decided not to approve our application. And our prayers that it would be granted in our favor, our prayers to God towards that end, weren't answered in the way we asked. But that decision to not grant the proposal uh, was not up to the foundation. I don't know God's every plan, I don't know God's every purpose. I do know the email we received came from the foundation, but the decision was from the Lord. And because it's from the Lord, we can trust Him completely with this project to to give what we need for its completion, to maybe not have us think thank God for the foundation. Maybe we were in danger of that. Again, I don't know. All we know is the decision came from the Lord. And so when its completion does happen in His perfect timing and in His ways, all praise and glory will go to Him. And that's the same reason why this feast is called Purim, after a pagan practice of casting lots. Because it reminds us who is over the lots. The name Purim calls us to remember God and to never forget that God alone determines the lot of His people, that the path of our lives and our ultimate end aren't up to powerful enemies or random chance, because every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. And we have to remember this because we say it here on Sunday, and then something will happen on Wednesday, and it is almost like we seemingly forgot that there's no such thing as chance. Uh, I don't know if you still watch the news. I haven't watched the local evening news in a long time, so I don't really know how they do it anymore. But I remember when I was little growing up, my parents often watched the local evening news. And at some point during the broadcast, uh, it would switch from the newsroom to this little room, with these machines with a bunch of bouncing balls in them that all had little numbers on them, and this lady standing next to them, and she was selecting, not really, the machine was, but she was going to tell you what was the state's daily lottery selection, right? All these things bouncing all around until one of them goes And then she would take it out and hold it to you. And, and, and every, every day, we're going to encounter these things where it looks like just things are going all over. Maybe not. Maybe one day it's just one or two. Maybe you're like, I got here and all of them are going right now. But the book of Esther reminds us that no matter how random things might seem, there's no such thing as chance. Second thing this feast calls us to remember is only God satisfies. There's no such thing as chance. And secondly, Only God ultimately satisfies. Now, last week, we read three times that God's people laid no hands on the plunder, and we connected that to 1 Samuel 15, so I'm not going to go into all that again. But I did leave one thing for today. Their not taking plunder, even though the edict allowed them to, showed that survival and not gaining wealth, Not growing in their possessions was what they fought for. It was survival. And when the fighting then was over, since they didn't take any plunder, they weren't tempted to rejoice in the things they gained. They weren't tempted to put their hope for the future in the stuff now that they had to make them feel more secure. Since they didn't take anything from those who hated them, the only thing they were left to rejoice in was the God who delivered them. And so to never forget how generous God's providence was towards them in these great reversals in the book of Esther, Purim was uh, days for feasting, for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor, gifts to the poor. They were days to remember God's generous love and grace towards them. And that remembering was supposed to shape them into generous, loving people. To remember that when everything they had was stacked against them, when they had no way to rescue themselves, when they were in fact poor in this situation, God moved generously towards them with with life. And so in stark contrast, to their enemies and their enemies' way of life, their enemies' living, their enemies' actions. Purim became a time when God's overflowing love towards them in His miraculous deliverance was annually displayed to the world around them that this God who acted in such great and generous love towards us is our God, so we now act generously in love towards others. It was a way for them to display with their lives the glory of God's generosity and His love and His grace. And brothers and sisters, when we remember that God's good providence towards us came when we were poor, and so, in other words, came in a time when we not only didn't deserve it, but we could never do anything for Him to earn it, and we could never pay Him back When God's good providence towards us came only because he loved us and not because of anything in us or done by us, but solely by his grace, we remember our place in God's story of redemption. And that act of remembering on a regular basis shapes more and more who we are. It shapes our living. It reminds us who we are and why we're here in this world. Remembers, We're reminded of whose story we're actually in and we're shaped by God's great love. Again, this was meant to be these days set aside while they were in exile in, in another nation was meant to display God's generosity towards them and how they acted towards one another. It was meant to be a witness. Why does this people in this nation do these things once a year? What's going on here? It was to be a witness that they were a generous and glad people and who their God is. Not the stuff they had, but what God had done for them. Not the things they owned, but that God was theirs and they were His. And I think that's a lesson for us. A church who... Sunday's schedules aren't just different. Like, like we do this on Sunday, but our neighbors do these other things. And other than just our schedules, that's what kind of makes us different. We just do different things, but we're, but we're pretty much the same kind of people. No, these moments of regularly remembering aren't just something we do, but they're acts that shape who we are. And so we become a church whose it's not just our Sunday schedules that are different from our neighbor's. But the great hope of our lives is what's different, and makes us different, and we act different. In our very actions, we're displaying whose we are and who we hope in this God in whom we find our ultimate satisfaction. And so, then, thirdly, then this thing—the uh, third thing this feast calls to remembrance—is there's no such thing as chance. It reminds us that ultimately, God satisfies. And we're in his story. And then thirdly, duty isn't opposed to delight. Duty isn't opposed to delight. Uh, Does it strike you strange the amount of times Esther and Mordecai obligate them and their future children to keep Purim every year without fail at the appointed time? not a day early, not a day late. Every year, don't forget. And then they make them promise. And then they say, you're obligated. And then they say, you're obligated. And then they say, do it without. Like, how many times? It's, it's, it's a tad strange when you think about it. Because after so great a salvation, in such a story that when you do read it all in one sitting, you're just hit over and over by the jaw-dropping reversals and the amazing providences of God that are almost unbelievable if they wouldn't be written down for us in Scripture. You would think that after all this, they wouldn't have to be obligated to celebrate and commemorate God's deliverance without fail. I think it proves the point, doesn't it, of our forgetful nature that we will forget unless we set times to remember. But that leads us to another tension, because uh, especially us modern people, we chafe under the thought of being obligated. That rubs our sense of freedom the wrong way. Uh, We don't like having duty placed on us. And it especially seems weird to have a spiritual duty placed on us. Uh, So, the culture we we live in places a great value on authenticity. And and that comes from the philosophical thought that authenticity then in our world is found in the natural self, like within. And then inauthenticity results from being conditioned by external sources, okay? So in other words, What's real is what naturally rises up within you. And anything that is not real is probably coming from these external conditioning sources that are placing limits on your freedom. And anything like that has to be viewed with suspicion. Okay, And so what happens here then, especially when it comes to spiritual duties that are obligations are placed on us, it's often here where God is called into question. Like, what kind of God needs to tell his people to remember him? What kind of God needs people to celebrate how great he is? And what kind of God even wants a people who have to be told to remember how great he is? Like, what kind of God wants a people that that need to be obligated to celebrate him? I mean, wouldn't he rather have it naturally well up from within us? I mean, is it really worship if you're told to do it? Uh, I'm not, I, I, I don't often eat there, um, but I'm sure most of you have eaten at a Chick-fil-A. And when you ask for something extra like sauce or napkins and they hand it to you and you say, thank you, what does every employee at every Chick-fil-A everywhere in the world say back to you? Good job, she works there. My pleasure. Thanks, Nakia. My pleasure. I mean, come on, for real? It's your pleasure to hand me a napkin? Right? They don't say, it's my duty. She laughs because she knows she'd get fired. <laughs> my pleasure. Not even you're welcome. You're like, not even, I had to do it or else my boss is going to get mad at me. Right? My pleasure. And I think the goal is that by conditioning their staff's response to customer, it actually begins to change, change their, their reason for being there. By saying my pleasure over and over and over and over, it actually becomes enjoyable to serve their customers, to want their customers to have a good time so they keep coming back. It begins to be their pleasure to serve and not just about the paycheck. It's probably not many of their pleasures to hand you extra ketchup and salt all shift long, but their obligated response begins to shape their approach to their work that they're doing. All right, so I think in a similar way, when God obligates his people to remember his amazing salvation through Mordecai and Esther, institution of this feast, to never forget Haman's evil plot and how God saved them from it, the duty is not actually opposed to delight. The duty is actually a grace. Grace. Because since God is God, and as we've sang this morning, He doesn't need anything. God doesn't need to institute this feast so that He's got people somewhere reminding Him and telling others how awesome He is. He's not needing our praise. He deserves it. He alone is worthy of it. But He is not needy for it. So the obligation is not for God's benefit, it's for ours. We're fickle and we're forgetful. So God's commands to remember, to never forget, are actually gracious obligations that lead us to delight, not keep us from it. One day, we will be made new. And we will finally have hearts that perfectly love God, and it will naturally rise up within us to the praise of his glorious grace. But until then, God commands to remember are a necessary duty. They're a necessary grace that lead us to find our joy in him alone. They're not trying to keep us from it. They're actually leading us to authentic delight, not inauthentic authentic worship. All right? And so this duty is actually shaping us into a people and keeping us on the path to delight so that we don't wander off of it. God's commands are not keeping you from joy. They're leading you to it. All right? So those are those three things that I think we can take, that there's no such thing as chance, that God is the only one that will ultimately satisfy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, Duty is not opposed to delight. So then I want us to finish up then with two important lessons to learn from the call to remember. What can we take from the things, okay, those are things to not remember. Okay, so what? So what? Here we are, two lessons for why we need to remember these things. First, celebrating God's past faithfulness reassures us of God's present faithfulness. Celebrating God's past faithfulness reassures us of God's present faithfulness. If we fail to remember how God has acted in the past, we won't rightly think about how he's acting in the present. And that's what you see over and over in the Old Testament, right? When Israel didn't act rightly, it was tied to their forgetting. So if we forget about how God has acted in the past, we will fail to live rightly in the present. And how does this How does this normally show up in our lives? Well, if we forget that nothing's left to chance, we'll begin to believe that maybe God can't see. Or maybe because it's random, He doesn't know what we're going through. And if we forget God's covenant love drives His faithfulness, well, then we can begin to think He sees and knows what we're going through. But He doesn't have our ultimate good in mind. We can't trust him. He knows everything, but maybe his love isn't as strong as we thought it was. And if we forget, though, that God never fails to carry out his loving purposes, so if we just remember his love and that he, and he never fails to keep his promises, and if we forget those things, well, then we can begin to think God knows what we're going through and he would really like it to work out for you but he doesn't have the power to see it through. When we forget God's past faithfulness, we have all these dangers on every side. But when we celebrate God's past faithfulness in his accomplishing his purposes and keeping his promises in loving ways to his people, when we remember that, we're reassured that even if we don't know how he's going to do it, in the present. Since he's never failed in the past, he's surely not going to fail now. God's past faithfulness reassures us of his present faithfulness, which leads then to the second lesson. Reassurance of God's present faithfulness gives future hope. God's reassurance of his present faithfulness gives future hope. God's past faithfulness reminds us that each of our lives are part of God's grand story of redemption, which he is faithfully carrying out right now, that we're a part of something far bigger than we could imagine. And if the author of that story is still faithful right now, I can trust him with the future. And so those things that bring the most fear and anxiety in the present become the very things God uses to give us great hope for the future. It's one of these surprising reversals that Esther teaches us. The most fearful and anxiety-filled moments become the moments that become the most hopeful for us. For if God is the one who reverses fasting into feasting, He reverses mourning into rejoicing, He reverses grief into gladness. He turns death into life. Then even the most dire situations are never too dire for God. They just become amazing opportunities for us to wait on the edge of our seats, or most likely on our knees in prayer, with the expectant hope of seeing how God is going to work this one out. I don't know, you don't know, maybe no one knows. But if God has always been faithful in the past, and that reassures me of his present faithfulness, even if I don't know or can't see how, I know he will work it out for my good and his great glory. So his past faithfulness reassures us of his present faithfulness and drives us to a hopeful future. And so, brothers and sisters, when hope runs low, where do you go? When your hope runs low, where do you first turn? Well, the story of Esther tells us that maybe some of those things that aren't necessarily sinful, praying with brothers and sisters, talking with brothers and sisters, those, those things might not be, be bad. But they shouldn't be your first turn. When hope runs low, fill up on God's past faithfulness. Remind yourself of his mighty acts of salvation. Not just to his people in the scriptures, but yours. Remember a time when you were waiting for him to act, and he showed himself faithful in those moments. Remember God's past faithfulness. And another way is to not neglect gathering for worship on Sundays, the day we set aside every week to remember God's past faithfulness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And and we do so by praying the Word, we read the Word, you hear the Word taught, we sing the Word, and then we hear the Word proclaimed. Purim was an annual feast, but Sunday is the church's weekly celebration of God's mighty acts of salvation and the good news of the gospel. Don't neglect gathering together, to hear the good news of the gospel week in and week out. And we need to because we don't live in exile in Persia like the people in Esther, but God's people are still exiles today. It's what we read in 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, to stay God's people as you live in exile. Now, one way we abstain from living out the passions of our flesh is by regularly remembering God's great mercy and grace. And here is where we need to have the rubber hit the road, because... The longer you're a Christian, the more you're really good at talking Christian. It doesn't matter where you are, right? The longer you're a Christian, the more you get good at talking Christian. And every every answer becomes Jesus, the Bible, or God's sovereign. And not wrong. (laughs) But when you're on the edge of your seat or on your knees in prayer... In, in most dire situations, trying to be hopeful, you know, Christian talk isn't what God wants you to say. He isn't much, he, it, isn't, it isn't his means to get through it. He doesn't want you just to be like, God's sovereign. He doesn't want you to say, God's merciful and gracious. One way, one way we live as exiles is by remembering God's mercy and grace. That changed our once into now. In other words, nitty gritty real life sort of stuff. Not just just Christian talk and kind of ethereal generalizations, but the once was turned into now. Remember where you were and what God rescued you from. And not only that, remember what you are now. And when we forget our true identity, we won't live in the reality that God has brought us into. If we just speak in generalizations, it doesn't help our specific ways of walking through daily life. And so one way we never forget, or in other words, one way to always remember God's mercy and grace, is to remember your story in the grand story of redemption how God specifically changed your wants into now. And we're going to do that here in a few moments because one reason why the church doesn't celebrate Purim is because Jesus instituted a greater feast with his people at a table that he is going to host, one in which we don't bring the things to eat or share with one another, one in which we're not required to bring him a gift. But to remember, we're the ones who were poor, and he's going to host us and bring us everything we need. We sit down at a table he hosts to remind us what we need is his broken body and shed blood. And it's, at these, it's as we take these elements in our hands that it's a specific, regular reminder of how Jesus turned our wants into now. And while the book of Esther reminds us of some of God's most surprising reversals, It's actually the Lord's Supper that we're pointed to here at the feast at the end of Esther that reminds us of the greatest reversal of all. When Satan thought that the Son of God's execution, or what was the Son of God's execution, was actually the very instrument of Satan's defeat. That Jesus becoming sin for us and dying in our place was actually the way God was going to put death to death forever and save his people from sin and death and give them life in his son. It's these great reversals. So we don't celebrate Purim because we have the table where the greatest reversal of all is celebrated. And our remembering at the Lord's table, though, is also a moment of tension, isn't it? Because what are the words we hear regularly at the table? We're proclaiming the Lord's death. But what? Until He comes. There's this tension that where we celebrate God's past faithfulness in this present moment, while we're still exiles waiting. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and put death to death forever and make all things new. And every time we come to this table, we're reminded that though our future is secure, we're still exiles in waiting. And that actually helps us understand the final three verses of Esther. They're, they're, I don't know how to say it, they're strange, aren't they? I mean, if, if you wrote this book, how would you end it? I think chapter 9 is a pretty great ending. Feasting, gladness, rejoicing, victory. So why in the world does chapter 10 open with a king imposing taxes? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm getting my tax documents regularly in the mail. You know, your receipts and your things and your this and your that. I'm not going, woohoo taxes. It seems like a very strange way to end a book. And I don't think it's because the people in Esther's day loved giving hazardous taxes. I don't think they thought the best way to end a story was, was taxes rather than feasting. But I think that's exactly why we're told about taxes. It reminds us that we still live in the times between what God has already done and what he has yet to do that we're still exiles sojourning through a life that will have its peaks, that the greatest victory has already been won. And yet because we're still awaiting the final victory, we live in a life that's full of deep valleys as we wait for God to accomplish his every purpose and keep every one of his promises. But that's why we're not only told about taxes in chapter 10, but also Mordecai. Yeah, they were still in an empire ruled by a tyrannical, fickle king who loved his money and wanted more of it. But God has his man in place who was seeking their welfare and their peace. He had Mordecai in place long before they ever knew they needed him in that place. God had lined up all the dominoes so that while fickle Ahasuerus still laid imposing burdens on his people, and while his people were still in exile, awaiting God to fulfill every one of his promises so that no one could say, yeah, but you forgot this one, God had a man in place to seek their peace and their welfare. And five points, while God's people in Esther's day had much to rejoice in, and they did, we have even more, don't we? We don't just have a man who at the end of his life will be buried in the ground like Mordecai was. We don't have just a human seeking our welfare and peace, but we have a God-man, Jesus Christ. And he died in our place for our sins, which makes Jesus our eternal peace with God. He has sought our peace and has accomplished it. But he didn't just die. As Romans says, more than that, Jesus was raised. And he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, reigning over all things. And because that's true, he's not only our peace, we can be sure that he is seeking our welfare. And because of that, Not only do we have the sure hope that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only do we have that sure hope, every single thing that happens as we wait for Jesus' final return, Because he was not only dead, but has been raised, we can be sure that he is working every single thing out for the good of those who love him. He is seeking our welfare and peace. So we have nothing to fear. And so again, these final verses show us that the people in this book aren't the heroes. Esther is not about Esther or Mordecai or Ahasuerus or Haman. They point us to the hero, the true and better king, Jesus. And because our God is steadfastly committed to his people and his purposes, we're, we're waiting in exile, but we're longing with hope. A hope with that settled conviction that joy is coming because Jesus reigns. And friends, the true and better King Jesus is returning one day soon to judge all his enemies once and for all, to make all things new, to put all things right, and to put death to death forever. But he is not just judge. The true and better King is also the one who saves all who take refuge in him. He is the only one who turns sinner's death sentence into eternal life. And his arms are wide open today for all who would come to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to the end of this amazing book. See all these mighty acts of salvation. And then we come to feast just as they did but not in great hope and celebration of a temporary deliverance, but an eternal one. Not just for a temporary ruler who the next generations will need someone else to seek peace and welfare, but the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, who will never fail to intercede for us, who will never fail in keeping us, who will bring every one of his people whom you gave him through to the end. And so we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your great salvation of us, and we pray that in these moments you would remind us of your great faithfulness to us, that it would reassure us of our present and give us great hope for the future, we pray. Amen.